Okay, so a few take-home points here. Hominid fossils generally fit into two categories, ape-like species and human-like species, with a large unbridged gap. This morphologically discontinuity reflects a genetic revolution. And the genus Homo appears abruptly in the fossil record and does not show that we evolved from ape-like precursors. This challenges Darwinian explanations for the origin of humans, and a Big Bang model requires the rapid origin of new genetic information, which is best explained by design. And of course, another take-home point is that human beings are special and unique. There are many properties of us that distinguish us from apes, and we don't see intermediates in either the, the living record or the fossil record. Welcome to the unique origins of humanity and the fossil record. I'm really glad to be here with you all today and so glad that you could join us for our conference on science and faith. About a year ago, I returned from South Africa where I had lived for the previous four and a half years doing a PhD in geology at the University of Johannesburg. While I lived in South Africa, I had many opportunities to learn about some of the famous hominid fossils that were found at the Cradle of Humankind. The Cradle of Humankind is perhaps one of the most famous fossil sites in the world. It's located about an hour north of Johannesburg. Um, what you see in this picture is the Maropang Museum, which is arguably the best hominid fossil museum in the world. I had many opportunities to go there and learn more about uh, these famous hominid fossils. Um, these are some photos from a tour that I took of the Sturkfontein hominid fossil site where some famous fossils, Mrs. Pless and Littlefoot, were found. Um, it also shows the famous workshop of Dr. Robert Broom, the South African medical doctor who basically founded the field of paleoanthropology in South Africa. And these are wonderful places to go and learn more about these ancient fossils. Um, I also had the opportunity to assist with sampling at a hominid fossil site at the Cradle of Humankind. Um, this is uh, from Bolt's Farm, which is a, a site where they find many uh, large carnivores and big cats. In fact, some of the fossils that are shown there in the cave wall next to me uh, are actually jaws of big cats. And I had the opportunity to use the paleomagnetism I was studying to go and help with some uh, fossil sampling at Bolt's Farm with some scientists who were trying to uh, do uh, dating of those fossils. So let's jump into this talk and where we're going to go. We're going to start by talking about the evolutionary view of human origins. What is the evolutionary scheme of how humans originated um, and evolved from ape-like precursors in the fossil record? We're then going to look at the field of paleoanthropology and how it is fragmented in multiple senses. Uh, paleoanthropology is, of course, the field that studies the origin of humans by looking at fossils in the record. We're then going to look at some of the early hominins, uh, supposedly some of the fossils that represent um, the earliest members of our lineage that branched off from the line that led to apes um, around five to eight million years ago. We'll then look at the Australopithecines, a very well-known group of hominids uh, that are known for many fossils throughout Africa. We're then going to see if there are intermediate links that supposedly link these ape-like Australopithecines to the human-like members of our genus, which is the genus Homo. We'll also then talk about the origin of our genus Homo in the fossil record and how it appears abruptly in the fossil record without any direct evolutionary precursors. Um, we're then going to talk about human exceptionalism. What is it and what does it say about the unique origins of human beings? And finally, we'll talk about our genus Homo that we're a part of and how the major members of the genus Homo are very similar and do not show that we evolved from ape-like ancestors. 
So what is the evolutionary view of human origins? Well, a few years ago, I had the opportunity to testify and, and uh, observe a debate at the Texas State Board of Education where they were discussing how they were going to teach evolution in public schools in Texas. Uh, various experts were invited to come and testify. Some were saying that students should learn the scientific strengths and weaknesses of evolution, and others were saying that we should teach only the evidence for evolution in the classroom. One of the scientists that was brought in and, and testified that we should teach only the evidence for evolution was an anthropology professor at Southern Methodist University named Ronald Wetherington. Um, Ronald Wetherington that day testified before the Texas State Board of Education about human origins. And he said that human evolution has arguably the most complete sequence of any fossil succession of any mammal in the world. No gaps, no lack of transitional fossils. And he went on to say that human origins provides a nice, clean example of what Darwin thought was a gradualistic evolutionary change. As I said, I also had the opportunity to testify before the Texas State Board during this debate. But as I was sitting there listening to Professor Wetherington testify, I thought, OK, well, I'm sure he believes what he's saying. I'm sure that he said everything he said in good faith. I have no reason to doubt that. But I know that when you dig into the technical literature, you find that a very different story is being told that many um, scientific papers in the technical literature have admitted that there is a severe gap between human-like fossils in the fossil record and our supposed ape-like ancestors. And so when Professor Wetherington said that there is sort of this nice, gradual evolutionary chain of fossils, that that really is not true when you understand what the technical literature is saying. And so what I, what I really appreciated this day is that there's often sort of one version of the evolutionary story that's told to the public, whether we're talking about National Geographic documentaries or in the news media, or when we testify before uh, the, the state boards of education about what students should learn in schools. And they often put forth sort of this very simplified, dumbed-down version of evolutionary history, saying that we've got it all figured out, there's no weaknesses in our model, and everything we find supports an evolutionary viewpoint. But when you dig into the technical literature, and I knew this because I'd read so many scientific papers in the scientific literature on hominid fossils, when you dig into that technical literature, you find many admissions of large-scale gaps and problems with this evolutionary scheme. And so I want to talk to you today about what some of these um, evolutionary papers are saying and how they acknowledge that there actually are problems with this overall evolutionary story. So what is this evolutionary story? Well, it starts between five to eight million years ago with what we call the early hominins. And these are some of the first species that supposedly started to walk upright, or they were bipedal, as we would say. And they branched off from the lineage that led to chimpanzees and started a new lineage that led to humans. Um, then from about two to four and a half million years ago, we have a group called the Australopithecines. These are a group of very small, uh, maybe chimp-sized, um, ape-like creatures, which supposedly are some of the first to clearly walk upright. And again, these are sort of supposed to be intermediate between these early hominins and then later hominins like our genus Homo. And in fact, the Australopithecines are supposed to be directly ancestral to our genus Homo. And the genus Homo appears around two to two and a half million years ago in the fossil record. And it is very human-like when it appears. Uh, many of its species, such as Homo erectus, Neanderthals, are very similar to our own species, Homo sapiens. And so the standard hominin phylogeny, when we look at these bones, we, you know, when we see these diagrams, these evolutionary trees and textbooks, they will connect all these fossils as if, as if one species is ancestral to another. 
But what does the evidence really say? And is there good evidence that human beings evolved from ape-like creatures? Well, I would say that what, we're, what we find in the fossil record and what we're going to see in this talk today is that hominid fossils generally fit into two categories, ape-like species and human-like species with a large unbridged gap between them. And the fossil record does not clearly document the evolution of humans from ape-like precursors. Now, I want to briefly touch upon a terminological issue, and that is what is a hominid or a hominin? Um, these terms are used diff differently, even within the mainstream scientific literature, you can see them used in different ways. But for our purposes today, the term hominid or hominin is going to refer to any member of this lineage that branched off from our supposed most recent common ancestor with chimpanzees and, and belongs on this line of the tree or this lineage that led to modern human beings. That's how we're going to find hominid or hominin in our talk today, even though these terms are, they are used that way in the scientific literature, but they can used, be used inconsistently, but that's how we're going to use them today. So let's talk about the field of paleoanthropology, this field which studies the, the origin of human beings from the fossil record. Well, I'm going to argue that the field of paleoanthropology is fragmented in three different ways. First, the fossils themselves are fragmented. Second, the record is fragmented in space and time. And third, the field itself is fragmented. Stephen Jay Gould, a famous Harvard paleontologist, said that most hominid fossils, even though they serve as a basis for endless speculation and storytelling, are fragments of jaws and scraps of skulls. Now, Gould said this in the year 1980, so it's a bit of a dated quote, but I would say this quote still holds true today. The vast majority of hominid fossils that we find are still fragments of jaws and scraps of skulls and maybe a few other bones as well. But by and large, the fossils we find in the field of paleoanthropology are very fragmented. The record is also fragmented. Harvard evolutionary biologist Richard Lewinton said that when we consider the remote past before the origin of actual species Homo sapiens, we are faced with a fragmentary and disconnected fossil record. Despite the excited and optimistic claims that have been made by some paleontologists, no fossil species can be established as our direct ancestor. And the reason he says this is because we don't have a complete picture of all the fossils that are out there. There are a lot of gaps in the fossil record, and the record itself is very fragmented. We're still discovering new species of hominids every few years. So the fossil record in paleoanthropology is very fragmented. Finally, the field itself is fragmented. I love this quote. It's from a PBS Nova producer who was doing a documentary on Neanderthals. And he said, each Neanderthal expert I thought, the last one I talked to was an idiot, if not an actual Neanderthal. So you see this when you read the memoirs of paleoanthropologists talking about their careers. They'll tell you great stories about rivaling factions within the field of paleoanthropology, people refusing to share bones so that other rival competitor labs could, could uh, essentially critique or evaluate their claims. And they will tell many stories of, of lack of objectivity within this field. And I would say that you know this is just human nature. It's the way that science works. But in the field of paleoanthropology, unfortunately, this competitiveness is especially acute. And we have to also we have to always take their claims with a grain of salt, knowing that these are human beings and there's a lot of competition and rivals within the field of paleoanthropology. So the field is also fragmented. Henry Gee, who's a senior editor at one of the world's top journals, Nature, said that fossil evidence of human evolutionary history is fragmentary and open to various interpretations. And what I want to ask today is whether the, one of the interpretations that we should be open to is the idea that humans did not evolve from ape-like precursors. 
If the evidence is so fragmentary, why is that interpretation disallowed? Especially, as we're going to see, when there is a distinct break in the fossil record and gap right where the origin of humans occurs from their supposed ape-like ancestors. So let's continue. And let's talk about some of these early hominins and some of the hype that has gone uh, on surrounding them. Uh, a recurring pattern that we see in this field, in this issue, is that when a fossil is first discovered, it will be promoted by the media as the latest human ancestor with lots of hype and fanfare. But then after a few months or maybe a couple years, cooler heads will prevail and scientists will publish papers saying, you know what, some of those early claims where we thought that it was a human ancestor really are not true. And we see this same cycle repeating over and over and over again with different hominid fossils, especially for these early hominids. So one of the first um, early hominids that was discovered around uh, the turn of the millennium was Auroran Tugensis. They dubbed it Millennium Man, and the New York Times said that fossils may be earliest human link. Well, you can see here in this, uh, in this drawing that only a few fossils were actually found, a few bone scraps and part of a femur. That's great. It's actually very rare to find part of a femur, but they didn't have a lot of this fossil. And in fact, a few years later, a Yale University press book was published saying, all in all, there is currently precious little evidence bearing on how Auroran moved. So essentially, we don't have enough knowledge of, its, of the structure of this organism to say that it was an upright walking species that sort of stood at the dawn of the human lineage that broke off from the line that led to chimps. Another um, early hominin that has been widely hyped is Artipithecus ramidus, or Artie it's been, as it's been affectionately dubbed. It was first uh, promoted in the media in the year 2009, and it was first published uh, we saw news story headlines like Artie, oldest human ancestor unveiled, or world's oldest human-linked skeleton found. So, uh, the journal Science called it breakthrough of the year. It was a great breakthrough. In fact, um, Tim White, one of the researchers on this project at UC Berkeley, said that Artie is the Rosetta Stone for understanding bipedalism, which of course means upright walking. Well, did Artie actually walk upright? Did we actually know that these claims that it was an early human ancestor are correct? And there was, again, one of these early species that branched off from the lineage that led to chimps and started us on a pathway of evolution that led to upright walking species um, such as human beings. Well, Time Magazine reported that when Artie was first discovered, it was in very poor shape. They said some portions of Artie's skeleton were found crushed nearly to smithereens and needed extensive digital reconstruction. They said that the pelvis looked like an Irish stew, that it was roadkill, it was squished, chalky, distorted, and crushed to smithereens. Don't miss what they're saying here. The pelvis is a crucial bone for understanding whether an organism walked upright. And what they're saying is that the pelvis initially looked like an Irish stew and that this fossil was crushed to smithereens. So if lots of artificial reconstruction was needed in order to understand how this species walked, how do we know that there isn't some bias in the reconstruction? How do we know that they're not reconstructing it properly if the, if the fossil initially looked like an Irish stew. That does not inspire confidence that these reconstructions of an upright walking early hominin are correct. And in fact, after these initial news stories hyped Artie as an upright walking human ancestor, within the next couple years, there were scientific papers that were published that showed that it probably was not bipedal. An article in the journal Science said that all of the Artipithecus raminus bipedal characters cited also serve the mechanical requisites of quadrupedality. Bernard Wood, a leading uh, paleoanthropologist, said in the journal Nature that the claim that Artipithecus ramidus was a facultative terrestrial biped is vitiated because it is based on highly speculative inferences and on only a few features. 
And Sarmiento, uh, an, a scientist who studied Artie, said that the hype around Artie was overblown. So again, we see that this hype is initially promoted in the media, and then over time, the hype dies down, and we see cooler heads prevailing, showing that these species are really not human ancestors. This cycle repeats over and over in this issue with the media, and I think it's safe to say that when you see these news stories promoting a new fossil find as a human ancestor, take it with a grain of salt and wait and see what the scientists and what the critics have to say as time goes on. So the next group of organisms in the fossil record are the Australopithecines, which are supposedly direct ancestors of our genus Homo. They're very ape-like. Their name literally means southern ape. They lived from about 1.9 to 4.5 million years ago. They have the brain and body about the size of the chimpanzee. And the most complete and famous skeleton fossil specimen known from uh, this genus is Lucy, who is a member of the species Australopithecus afarensis. Now, even though Lucy and other Australopithecines are often portrayed as if they were miniature humans with chimp-sized brains who were walking around upright, there are many Australopithecine traits that are ape-like and are not human-like, including their arms, their hand bones, their shoulders, their toes, their brain size, their chest, their teeth, their inner ear canals, and their developmental patterns, and their abdomen. Inner ear canals, by the way, you might not think that those are important for understanding how an organism walked, but if you've ever, ever had an inner ear infection, you know that that directly affects your balance. And in this case, the shape of the inner ear canals of the Australopithecines were very similar to modern apes, which walk on all fours. That tells you something about how they, all, they actually walked. In fact, the hand bones of Lucy were found to be similar to a chimp or a gorilla, and it was proposed in the journal Nature that they knuckle-walked. Um, Lucy's bones were also found to be very suitable for climbing in trees. Certainly not an upright walking species on the ground like we are. Other studies have found that Lucy's pelvis was badly crushed, had distortion and error in the reconstruction, creating a very human-like shape, and they said that more fossil evidence is needed for us to really understand how Lucy walked. So I think it's not clear-cut that Lucy was an upright walking human ancestor. Now, as I said, the Australopithecines are said to be a direct ancestor of human beings. But again, when you dig into the technical literature, um, a, an article in the Journal of Molecular Biology and Evolution said that no gradual series of changes in earlier Australopithecine populations clearly leads to the new species. That would be early Homo. And no Australopithecine species is obviously transitional. So there's a problem here that we don't see Australopithecines that are directly transitional to, human to the genus Homo. Um, University College London anthropologist Leslie Aiello said that Australopithecines are like apes and the Homo group are like humans. Something major occurred when Homo evolved and it wasn't just in the brain. So what are some of the supposed intermediate links that bridge this gap from the ape-like Australopithecines to the human-like members of the genus Homo? Well, for many years, a favorite intermediate was the species Homo habilis. But again, when you dig into the technical literature, you find that Homo habilis was actually more Australopith-like or more chimp-like than it was similar to humans. Nature called it on the basis of its skull an unlikely intermediate, and a study in the journal Science in 1999 found that through a huge study of many anatomical traits of Homo habilis, that it actually should be Australopithecus habilis. It's more similar to the Australopiths than it is to human beings and the genus Homo, and it should be classified as one of the ape-like Australopithecines. Um, in the year 2015, Homo naledi, you may have heard of this fossil, was proposed as a new human ancestor. CNN said that it is a new species of human ancestor discovered in South Africa. 
The Daily Mail, scientists discover new, a skull of new human ancestor, Homo naledi, and PBS said a trove of fossils from a long-lost human ancestor. It is true that the find of Homo naledi was a wonderful find for the field of paleoanthropology, and it was a huge number of bones that were discovered. But do they serve as a human ancestor? Well, Homo naledi's promoters initially suggested that it lived around two to three million years ago. But that date was not from a geological analysis. It came strictly from evolutionary considerations. When Homo naledi was finally dated in the year 2017, it turned out to be one-tenth of the age that it needed to be in order to be a human ancestor. Um, only about 250,000 to 300,000 years old, which is far too young to be a human ancestor. So when the genus Homo does finally appear, it appears in an explosion that's been cited in the fossil record. The technical literature reports an explosion or rapid increase with punctuated change and approximately double, doubling of brain size at the appearance of Homo around 2 million years ago. And a study of the pelvises of Australopithecines and Homo found very rapid evolution corresponding to the emergence of the genus Homo. And we see throughout the literature discussion of the abrupt appearance of our genus Homo. Um, this article in the journal Molecular Biology and Evolution said that Homo erectus, or Homo orgaster, some of the earliest members of the genus Homo, was significantly and dramatically different from Australopithecus in virtually every element of its skeleton and every remnant of its behavior. The changes are sudden. No Australopithecine species is obviously transitional, transitional a radical transformation, in other words, a genetic revolution. In fact, uh, Science Daily ran an article they called this a Big Bang Theory of Human Evolution. Uh, a few years back, there were three Harvard paleoanthropologists who talked about the origin of our genus Homo, and I found their words very enlightening. They said, the transition from Australopithecus to Homo was undoubtedly one of the most critical in its magnitude and consequences. As with many key evolutionary events, there is both good news and bad news. First, the bad news is that many details of this transition are obscure, because of the paucity of the fossil and archaeological records. So basically, the details of this transition from Australopithecus to Homo aren't known. We don't know what happened. They go on to say the good news. Although we lack many details about exactly how, when, and where the transition occurred from Australopithecus to Homo, we have sufficient data from before and after the transition to make some inferences about the overall nature of key changes that did occur. So in other words, we see that the fossil record provides ape-like Australopithecines before and human-like Homo after the supposed transition, but not actual fossils documenting a transition between them. In the absence of intermediates, we're left with inferences of a transition based strictly upon the assumption of evolution. Um, Ernst Mayer, one of the great evolutionary biologists of the 20th century, said that the earliest fossils of Homo are separated from Australopithecus by a large, unbridged gap. How can we explain this explain this seeming saltation or jump. Not having any fossils that can serve as missing links, we have to fall on the time-honored method of historical science, the construction of a historical meth narrative. So Ernst Mayer is saying here that we do not have fossils documenting a transition between Australopithecus and Homo, and instead there is a large unbridged gap. And I think this is a very significant admission for what is really going on with regards to the origin of our own genus Homo. Um, and this problem is not just for the origin of humans. A major 2015 review of hominin evolution said that the evolutionary sequence for the majority of hominin lineages is unknown. Most hominin taxa, particularly 
early hominins have no obvious ancestors, and in most cases, ancestor descendant sequences um, cannot be reliably constructed. So I find this to be a very interesting admission from a, a leading review of human or uh, from hominin evolution that we don't have clear cut ancestor descendant sequences for the majority of hominin lineages. So let's talk briefly about human exceptionalism and what that is. Human exceptionalism is the view that the human race has unique and unparalleled moral, intellectual, and creative abilities. And there are many obvious features of human beings which are exceptional. Our complex language, the complex tools that we make, fire, clothing, our ability to do abstract reasoning, mathematics, music, poetry, religion, and moral reasoning are all traits that only human beings have. Um, MIT professor and linguist Noam Chomsky says that human language appears to be a unique phenomenon without significant analog in the animal world. And he says there is no reason to suppose that the gaps are bridgeable. So human language is very unique, but some people ironically use the unique properties of human language to claim that this supports evolution. Um, Yuval Noah Harari in his very popular and widely read book, Sapiens, says that this ability to speak about fictions is the most unique feature of Sapiens' language. Fiction has enabled us to merely, not merely to imagine things, but to do so collectively. We can, leave, we can weave common myths, such as the biblical creation story. Such myths give Sapiens the unprecedented ability to cooperate flexibly in large numbers. Well, I would say that Harari is undoubtedly correct that shared beliefs, or myths as he calls them, foster cooperation, and that cooperation has helped humans survive. But this is an observation, not an explanation. And perhaps these shared myths, which foster friendship and fellowship and cooperation among humans, do not result from pure chance evolution, as he puts it, but reflect the state of human society as it was intended by a benevolent designer. Large-scale human cooperation might be a designed consequence for a society with widely shared beliefs, or myths, as he calls them, not accidental byproducts of human evolution. So this was designed as a, as a property of human society to help us to cooperate and survive. And in fact, there are many aspects of human cognitive and language abilities which go beyond the mere requirements for a species to survive and reproduce on the African savanna two to three million years ago. Think of Michelangelo painting the Sistine Chapel, or Oscar Schindler um, sat, risking his own life to save people outside of his own tribe, the Jews, or Albert Einstein, a genius who was able to ponder the deep secrets of the universe. None of these traits would help you in any way survive and reproduce on the African savanna two to three million years ago. Um, these are special traits which I think go beyond the requirements of natural selection and show that human being, human life, is not simply about survival and reproduction. There's a lot more to us, and we are called to higher purposes than merely surviving and reproducing. So the next time someone tries to break down the differences between humans and apes, remind them that it's human beings who write scientific papers studying apes and not the other way around. So let's close this by talking about the genus Homo and how when we look at these, the major members of the genus Homo, they're very similar and do not show that we evolved from ape-like precursors. In contrast to the Australopithecines, the major members of the genus Homo, Homo erectus and Neanderthals, are very similar to modern humans. They're so similar to us that some have classified erectus and Neanderthals as members of our own species, Homo sapiens. A comparison of the skulls of Homo erectus, Neanderthals, and Homo sapiens show that they're very similar. Of course, there are some minor differences, um, but they're very, very similar, and they don't show large-scale macroevolution.
In fact, um, Neanderthals had a, lar- had a brain size that is on average was slightly larger than modern human beings, and even the uh, average brain size of Homo erectus is within the range of modern human genetic variation. So if you, you could probably take a lineup of skulls, from very small skulls to very large skulls known from the hominid fossil record, but that does not necessarily show that we evolved from unintelligent ape-like precursors. So I would say if you've got a big head or an intermediate-sized head, don't think that that necessarily shows that we see some very gradual evolution of intelligence um, from the hominid fossil record. In fact, internal brain organization is much more important and complex for determining brain uh, intelligence than is the sole dimension of brain size. Here's a funny little anecdote. The Russian novelist Ivan Turgenev, who lived in the 1800s, had a brain weight of about two kilograms. But the French novelist Anatoly France had a brain weight of only about one kilogram. So one very intelligent, famous author's brain is twice the size of another intelligent, famous author's size uh, brain from the same time period. So again, uh, the size of your brain is not really the most important thing for determining how intelligent you are. Um, Homo erectus, although its brain size was on average smaller than modern humans, again, its brain size was within the range of modern human genetic variation. And we have found Homo erectus fossils on isolated islands. This has led some paleoanthropologists to speculate that they have the ability to travel over water in boats and actually build boats. And some linguists have made the point that if they were able to travel over boats, that would have required complex language for them to be able to cooperate and and build these boats and then travel over the seas to arrive at these isolated islands. So I think that Homo erectus might be much smarter than we think they were. Um, Neanderthals, um, it's been said that they may have been, they may have had heavier brows or broader noses or stockier builds, but behaviorally, socially, and reproductively, they were all just people and they were using technology as advanced as that of contemporary anatomically modern humans and using symbolism in much the same way. So I understand that there is debate about uh, among uh, maybe some Darwin skeptics about whether Neanderthals um, actually are related to human beings, but whatever is the case, Neanderthals do not show that human beings are descended from primitive and or ape-like uh, creatures. In fact, there are fossils that show evidence of morphological mosaics, suggesting that humans interbred with Neanderthals, and genetic studies show that there is Neanderthal DNA in many Europeans. So what's really the difference between us and them? In fact, a few years ago, there was a team of Israeli and French scientists who reconstructed um, a Neanderthal skeleton. And uh, this reconstruction attracted some attention on the internet because it looked so much like Chuck Norris. And people thought, oh my gosh, this Neanderthal, it's Chuck Norris. Well, I would say this shows that Neanderthals really were not all that different from human beings. Um, And of course, this leads to many uh, Chuck Norris jokes. Uh, There is no theory of evolution, just a list of animals that Chuck Norris allows to live, or Chuck Norris uh, once kicked a horse in the chin, that's how giraffes evolved, or if Chuck Norris was a Neanderthal, he'd he'd still be smarter, stronger, and more advanced than you. Okay, well anyway, the point is that these various members of the genus Homo are very similar to one another, and I would say that their differences represent small-scale microevolutionary changes not macroevolutionary change that shows one type of organism changing into a very different type of organism. Okay, so a few take-home points here. Hominid fossils generally fit into two categories, ape-like species and human-like species with a large unbridged gap. This morphological discontinuity reflects a genetic revolution. 
and the genus Homo appears abruptly in the fossil record and does not show that we evolved from ape-like precursors. This challenges Darwinian explanations for the origin of humans, and a Big Bang model requires the rapid origin of new genetic information, which is best explained by design. And of course, another take-home point is that human beings are special and unique. There are many properties of us that distinguish us from apes, and we don't see intermediates in either the, the living record or the fossil record. And I'd like to think that Chuck Norris would approve of this message. In fact, in the official Chuck Norris fact book, he says, I believe in microevolution, genetic mutations that provide small variations of different species in the animal kingdom. But I don't believe those micromutations lead to macroevolution, large genetic jumps that turn one animal into another, such as apes into humans. And all I can say is, well said, Chuck, not bad for a Neanderthal. So thank you very much, and I look forward to taking your questions at the end of the conference.